Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome back after a long break to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. We're going to start with the most nefarious team in world rugby, the one who Leinster have to slay once and for all. <laughs> uh, it's funny that they're having the final of that tournament in April. It gets earlier every year. Um, Saracens. So we discussed a couple of times on previous podcasts, uh, you know, the the housing, housing wise of their 35 point deduction and their 5.2 million pound uh fine or whatever it was and we kept on asking questions of like well surely they're over the uh, surely they're over the salary cap this year and you kept we kept well i'm not gonna say i pulled the thread but like the, the questions were there to be asked and the answers are coming out in drips and drabs so saracens are relegated they have the european cup to play for and no one knows where their players are going to go or how they're going to get under any salary cap. It's an amazing situation. Um, I was there, There's so many elements to discuss. So the, the one that I will deal with first, which isn't particularly of interest, I suppose, Irish rugby fans, is the nature of the premiership season. Saracens played, they've played eight games so far. They played three games before there was any finding against them. So they played three games in what you would say is a typical Premiership season, not their strongest team all the time. They knew they'd have other competitions to compete in. Uh, start of a, an unusual World Cup season. Then, in the I think it was the fifth of November, after they played three games, was the first finding against them. They were to be fined a huge, like a huge fee, five points, five point two, five point six million, and have thirty five points deducted from them. So that completely changed their modus operandi and that they now have to struggle and put a f- strong team in almost every week to uh, just to compete, just to stay up. So they played five games under that condition, the second condition. And now they have this third condition for the remainder of the season in that they're going to be relegated no matter how well they do or how badly they do. So there, there's three different conditions under which teams have played them. They've only played eight out of 22 games, which means that there's some teams who haven't played Saracens once. So there are, there are two games of the season will be against Saracens who have nothing to play for, are completely uncompetitive. Uh, so it not only damages Saracens, and it not only damages the, um, the league, it damages the whole integrity of this year. It irredeemably damages it. Uh, and that's, that's only one competition of one season. Sorry, but and, there's and, plenty more. Oh yeah, and, and and the previous year, and the thing about them in the table is they're the best points difference in the league by a distance. So they've, they've scored 227, which is the second best, right? They're two behind Northampton, and they have by a distance the best defence. They've conceded 106, right? So that puts them 121. The next best is, surprisingly, Sale on 77. Huh. Sale are in fourth place, but fourth place, but they're plus 77. So... I was looking at it every week, and to put it in context, 
they're on minus seven at the moment. And Leicester, second last, are on 11. But like, you know, Leicester are 11 from eight games. So they're picking up one point. Um, one, one point, point sort of, mm. yeah, one, one, yeah, one point three, one point four, like one point three five, and Saracens wouldn't be top. Like I think Exeter would still be top without the without the deduction, but only by a point. And Saracens obviously have the best, and Saracens have played Exeter away from home. They've played them down mm. at uh, Sandy Park. So I was because you asked the question about like you know how appropriate is the fine. And I was thinking to myself, well, like if if that's what the penalty is that would seem to be the appropriate. And I think your question was along the lines of, should they take the previous trophies away from them? Like, how, how do you do that? Like, is it like Calciopoli? Um, and then, yes, the next question about, well, how can they keep their squad together? Like, nothing has changed. And I, the thing that surprised me the most was this was followed through on. I did not expect it to be followed through. I didn't expect the fine to be levied and the points... Um, I didn't expect that. I thought it'd be a sort of a finger wagon. It was like, oh, you're boys. down two boys games. Will be, boys will be boys, you know. Yeah. Owen absolutely. Farrell can't play in three random matches. And yeah, but, during the Six Nations. <laughs> but, you know, they've. So, like, it's, it's, it's a far bigger headache to try and enforce the laws than they would have got. So they would have got some shit for basically letting them get away with it. But everyone would have gone, oh, well, they're kind of the best team anyway, so they probably would have won anyway. But that's that's what they're doing, yeah. And which is what some people are saying anyway. But they're getting far. But they're getting. They're having. They're enjoying far more strife by going. Oh, we actually have to. You know, fuck. We have to punish these people and uh, meeting it out bit by bit in as as the season goes along renders one entire season kind of like with minimal information uh, provided to all rugby fans. You know, the only reason that a professional league exists is because of fans. People actually go watch it, you know, both in the in the stadiums and on television. Uh, so you have these, you have the PRL, who we never, like Irish rugby fans never have previously been fans of PRL. And it's the same people, it's the same club owners. Mark McCafferty's moved on, but it's just another similar sort of Tory bellend running it. And... Um, you know, meeting out, uh, Saracens have been found guilty of breaking the salary cap in this season, that season, that season, and as a result, this is the fines that they have. And people want to know what they did, how much they broke the salary cap, by. what is the actual story? Like, you would want to know if anything happened in the political world, you know, oh, such and such has been found guilty of malfeasance and he will no longer be in the government, you know. That's the fucking beginning and the end. There's no middle. What's the middle? What have they actually done? Let me make my own mind about what I think is right and wrong in this, what I think is harsh and fair. Because nobody knows how much they're over the salary cap. Well, they're over two, two million on a seven million cap was the figure that I saw. But the, one of the things and one of the reasons why they're taking the hit this time is that they won't open their books. So Tony Rowe, Tony Rowe's name has came up quite a lot. So Tony Rowe is the chairman of, of Exeter. And he was the quote that I heard on Off the Ball yesterday saying that they won't open their books. Mm. And then you're kind of thinking, are the revenue going to go and open their books? Like, have they been paying appropriate taxes on this? So I assume for, for that they have been and that they're in breach of the salary cap rather than like it's, it's all back, like that it's illegal mm -hmm. as well. Um, looking at it from previous weeks, 
previous months, um, the FT had an article saying that the investment of CBC Capital Partners, they bought 27% in the premiership, is also significant in that context. And the private equity firm are understood to have firm views about any salary cap breaches. The Mail had one, one high-powered premiership source, which, like, who knows, the, the rocket man from saying or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, said, quote, we had a situation in 2015 where two clubs were cheating the cap and we had all the evidence before us, but the clubs bottled it and everything got swept under the carpet. The world has changed with the CVC money and there are more clubs with bigger ambitions now. The attitude this time is, if they've done wrong, they should be heavily punished. Now that puts... That doesn't say that CVC took a dim view of it. It says that as a consequence of the CVC money, the other clubs took a dim view of it. So you've, you've sort of got competing I stories, presume that but CVC did take a dim view of it as well, now that they're stakeholders. I presume they did as well, because this has been rumored, this has been going on for years. Yeah. And it's been rumored to have been going on for years. And that's why it's surprising to me that now all of a sudden it is so severe. Yeah. And... Like they have to break up that team, and then they have to be whiter than white um, for the remainder of it. And Nigel Ray has stepped back. So, and this happened within the last month. Nigel Ray stepped back. They brought back Ed Griffiths, and even when they brought him back, so Ed Griffiths had been the chief exec. He's he's brought back as interim chief exec. So he had been the chief exec of Saracens, and even his title, they said interim chief exec. You sort of go, oh well. Is Ed Griffiths like? Does he only want to work for a year? Why is he only going back for a year? Like, why? What would be worth his time to step out of whatever he's doing now, or to turn down other opportunities in order to come back for a short-term contract with Saracens? You go, that's really odd. And now it's apparent that he's coming back as the steadiest pair of hands to tell guys that they're going to have to move on, like fellas who have like kids in school or have mortgages or on a certain amount of money. And he's just going to tell them, well, like, you're not going to be playing for this club. You're not going to be paid this amount, or you might be paid this amount, but you're going to be doing it like for Montpellier um, and, and break that up. And I would imagine try to figure out like, how do you hold on to George, Itoje, Farrell. Vunapolis. And yeah, the Vunapolis. If you can keep, can you keep those five? Can you play in the championship with those five players? Can you work out like a loan scheme and get up with another? Like, what what are they going to do with those guys? Because like, because of the fact that they're all England internationals, you would imagine they'd actually play less for Saracens. But like, they are like that is the core of Saracens' team. It's the core of England's World Cup final team. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly, it's a situation which has uh, <clears throat> really long, a situation that has tentacles. <laughs> a situation which has... Um, roots. Roots. Yeah, yeah. No, but they go everywhere. It, they penetrate into English, obviously the English national team. You know, the next thing that they'll be talking to, uh, talking about is the Lions. Those those five players are their test Lions. I know Billy Bonapola isn't and isn't, but he, he will be. Um, and now both Funapolas came from Mako came from Bristol first and Billy came from Wasps which sometimes is sort of overwritten because they've been at Saracens a long time Um, but you know that is the core of a Saracens side which has been together for seven years three of them from the Saracens Academy there's others that we're not mentioning like 
George Cruz, you know, who's rumored to be going to Japan. But it's it has such ramifications at, at, across you know across all these levels and going into the English Championship, a very unfashionable league, uh, would, where some students. I remember reading, uh, sorry, some players live like students. I remember reading uh, Robin Copeland's article about when he was playing for Bedford and saying like he was living in a student apartment, mole on the walls, and everyone else was going on the piss all the time, and he was playing semi-pro rugby for something like twelve thousand. Sterling a year. You know, this was before he went to Cardiff. Subsequently, he came back to Irish rugby. You know, but that's that's that hasn't changed that much. You know, that's mostly that game is that league is mostly funded by the RFU. They have a sponsor as well, but I get that is not a self-sufficient league mm-hmm. in the way that the Pro does, for example. The, the the kind of crazy thing about it is this is the only league in the world where this could really happen. Like I. As far as I can tell, like the French salary cap is so high that. Well, I, I can I just cut across you there because, like now the Saracens have been reprimanded for their super team. Like Toulon were obviously taking the piss for three years out of everyone in European rugby with their team. I doubt that they were living within the salary cap. I should say that that with that super team that they put together with all those World Cup winners and finalists, you know. <laughs> I think part of it is that you have to have a salary cap for it to be breached because the other team that you'd look around at, like who are so good, is Leinster. And you go, okay, well, you Leinster... Take, you take that back. <laughs> Leinster are obviously operating within the constraints of the IRFU and they're centrally funded and then they get their own gate money and their marketing money and some guys have their, you know, topped up, like Jamie Heaslip is Bank of Ireland, Johnny Sexton's Dennis O'Brien. But... Like, that's known about. But then you sort of think, okay, if playing for Ireland wasn't such a motivation, wasn't such a carrot, would Leinster hold on to as many players as they do? Like, what's what's the wage? And then, I don't know. But at the same stage, you're going to, Leinster aren't breaching anything. Mm. No, but it's also like they don't operate in a free market. Like, it's... And the idea that that is in, in some way less legitimate or, or, like, they stay in Ireland because they, they want to play for Ireland, like rather than going to the highest bidder all the time. It's like, as if that's that's less legitimate or a less worthwhile thing to do, or that, like, that's what they want to do. That's what, that's, that's what they want to do. So yeah. now I wonder, what will happen? CBC, this has been dragging on for ages, but whether CBC have actually signed the paper, because I keep seeing things, headlines saying one thing, and then the, the body of the article saying another. But I think it's safe to assume that at some stage, CBC, if they have not already, will take... A twenty-something percent stake in the Pro Fourteen, and they have a twenty-seven percent stake in the Premiership, and all the TV deals are up in twenty twenty-two. So there you go. And then the Six Nations is going to fit in with that as well. For I think it's a certain number of years. What's going to fall out of that that we've talked about before is a British and Irish league. And I don't mm-hmm. know, are they going to split it up having like half the English teams in with half the Pro 14 teams? Or are they going to keep it in two conferences and they go to playoffs? Like, we don't know. It hasn't been, it hasn't no, been discussed. No, yeah, there's but, no point. Yeah, like it, but it's, it, you sort of go, okay, if the Premiership have a salary cap, are the Irish teams going to have a salary cap? Like, is that is that going to matter? <laughs> is it... How's that, how's that going to be? How's that going to work? It, yeah. And, and as you said before, if all the teams are playing together in one league, um, it's harder for 
because uh, Irish players will be as visible playing for an English or a Welsh or a Scottish team as they would be playing for an Irish team. And they would have the same kind of mandated breaks during the season for internationals and all that sort of stuff. You'd yeah. If they were yeah. The same. Which, you know, I guess would be a huge part of the negotiations before any of that happens as well. Again, that is this is something which is looming, but which we don't have any information on. No. I think it's one of the things that's interesting to me is that, like, the two, I mean, loudest voices in Irish rugby are still Leinster and Munster, and or, or the fans thereof. And, like, Leinster certainly feel uh, somewhat aggrieved with the fact that we lost the Saracens in the European Cup final this year. And Munster... I have a right to feel somewhat aggrieved because they were eliminated by Saracens in this year's cup. But I mean, I I don't I don't I don't know what the opinion of anyone like who supports a Welsh team or a Scottish team or a French team like do they do any of them care or is that is it is this just a like is this just like oh what are the English doing? Now? It's funny like when I I look back on when we uh, we got beaten in the final last year and I don't feel like, oh, Saracens robbed us because they're cheating rich boys. You know, I just think oh, we, that's a game we lost. Uh, I think that the, the interest in me lies in in the fallout that's happening now, in the reaction. Like we were Either consciously or subconsciously, I was pretty sure that Saracens weren't playing by the same financial rules as the rest of the English teams. Like, you know, that they announced that, well, we're going to sign Elliot Daly to go along with Liam Williams and, you know, all these things. I sort of go, well, how does that work? You know, we all really want to play in Bernard Coptal. You know, <laughs> so that that hasn't been a big factor in my head. But I, I just think on the on the wider scheme of rugby in Europe, this is it's just huge. It's far bigger than a match, mm. um, and it's and it's still unwinding. It's, there's still so much more to come. Like. Nobody knows what the actual story is yet. How much they are like, you know, who's getting it's, paid? Well, once that juice comes out, it's like a, there's so yeah. much left to come. Who's on what? How is this deal structured? Did somebody get a house in South Africa? Did somebody get a house in Richmond under his wife's name? You know that sort of stuff. Like it's such a strange form of cheating as well. I think that people uh, are the the. The general public reaction to it has been, um, it's not like they were match fixing or they were uh, systematically doping. Two things that are like you know they're they're oh, black grave moral sins mm-hmm. that you know that, that that destroy the game, but like they in a black and white way contravened the like systematically the system and systematically contravened the rules of the competition win. For years. To the, to, for years and years and years, for, to the best of our knowledge, because no one's actually said exactly what they did yet, but just that we, we do know that we can say that for certain. So it's, it's a strange form of cheating, and you have that kind of criticism where it's like, well, if you're the players, did nothing wrong. But like the fucking players picked up the trophies. The players, they, but the, well, if the players are so fucking happy doing nothing wrong, do they want to take pay cuts? Do they want to take fucking 75% pay cuts? They did it for years, and everyone seems to have known about it and no one called them out and now they've been called out and it's the most natural thing and you're going like well <laughs> what kept you i mean what was the how come how come this is wrong now and i think that's that's the bit that i am surprised at and i kind of i understand why it's been done but i sort of struggle with it it's I'm, 
maybe it's when you're a kid and you see people telling you to do one thing while they're quite obviously doing the other thing. It's mm. like, you know, don't eat that sweet. And then, you know, you turn around, you finish off the cake and you come down the next yeah. day and go, where's the cake gone? And it's like, well, I didn't eat it. So like, you must have eaten it. And you're telling me not to eat it. Like, yeah. No way. <laughs> so I'd equate it to that. So the, the, the story came out though, because there was an investigation by, of all places, the Daily Mail. And then it was... Kept. Daily Mail have been really good on this, by the way. Their coverage is great. This came about because of an investigation by the Daily Mail, who then agreed to keep it sort of hush-hush until the World Cup final was over, which is like... Oh, that's... That's, that's bananas. No, it's not. <laughs> like, <laughs> the Mail love... They love that weird Middle Englander bullshit. <laughs> Let's bow together behind no, the bricks it, until like, they lose and it will slam them. <laughs> it's like... It, it's sort of like though, if it bleeds, it leads. It's like if if this was a major scandal about the English uh, football team, uh, like you can like the sun would run it in the middle of a mm, tournament, even mm-hmm. if they were in the semi-finals. Like you know, it would be murder fucking on the front page. Absolutely. Like I, but so I, what I just don't understand is like when did the male get involved in investigative journalism, and <laughs> and when do they? When, oh, when do they get, Prime snoopers. But like, this is like, this is a different, like, this like is, the male there's is no a, titillation in this. The male is this a. This is just, this m- is like a, bo- like, this was like a it's a massive, administrative scandal. It's a massive operation though, Ian. You know, like the male is a massive, like it's what, the most visited news website yeah. in the world? Like it's a massive operation. And just because it is a filthy rag, it doesn't mean that there's not, like, there are proper journalists working on it. Um, it's, it is, but you know, and when you say they agreed to cover it up, but sure the PRL, uh, owners agreed to cover up the, the first tranche of salary cap, uh, breakers in 2015. Yeah. Just like, oh, let's just hush everything up. Like it's the, the PRL, the PRL basically is just the owners. So there's just like 12, 13 Tories, basically 13 millionaire Tories who are making stuff up as they go along and they go, oh, we don't want to get our corruption thing out in the air now. But now four years later, oh, I'm so pissed off. This guy is so corrupt and winning all our trophies that now we will out him. We're not going to take his trophies back. No, he won't give us his trophies I, back. Look, oh, oh, look, give us our trophies back. Like they should just tell him, well, no, we're taking your trophies back. They, I, It's the Premier am, League's trophies, not Saracen's. Like. I'm 100% certain before the end of the season, those trophies will be going back. Like, this is happening drip by drip by drip. Yeah. There's no way you can go around deducting 70 points off a team to automatically relegate them and finding them, like, 5 million quid. And breaking up their team. And breaking up their team. While they consistently flout the rules and then be like, and they put it, read that they put it in a demand to get the trophies back. And, that's and, and weird. then you're like, no, that's no, weird. it's, it's grand, you can keep them. Saracens are just like, oh, no, we're not going to give you the trophies back. That, this is what I don't understand about, like, you, oh, show us your books and give us those trophies back. No, we're not going to do that. It's like, oh, okay. It's it's 11 against one or 12 against one. They just go, well, we're taking the trophies back. But, like, what's happening next year is the other thing. Is that, So, these play, where are these players going to go? Who? So, are they going to stay in England? Or is your if you going to make exemptions to allow them in you know because they're ex- certain circumstances they might pick someone from abroad 
given the year that's in it, given that it's a Lions year and they want to keep these players' well, uh, hopes. So if they go and play... There's players clubs, There's players who you can sign outside the salary cap. There's two marquee players or franchise players, whatever they're called. Marquee, I think. And they can be signed outside the cap. So I presume, like, someone's just going to go, yeah, we'll sign Owen Farrell. And another team is going to go, yeah, we'll sign a Toje. And another team's going to go, we'll sign Mako. Another team's going to sign, we'll sign Billy. Well, they'll have to sign the brothers together, actually. <laughs> Billy doesn't do his homework. But that's that's what they'll just get split up around the league. Like Billy might go back to Wasps. Saracens will go to the championship and somebody will go to Bristol. Oh no, they can't go to Bristol because Piotr is going to Bristol. Piotr is getting paid a mint again. Piotr is in Bristol, but yeah, Redrada is going to Bristol. Redrada. The um, the. The Premiership is owned by 13 clubs. So there's 12 teams in it and it's owned Newcastle, by 13. Yeah, so Newcastle, Newcastle, yeah. Newcastle London Irish, whoever is the revolving... Uh, <laughs> trapdoor victim. Trapdoor victim, yeah. Whoa. But I, I just going back, because I, I started off something about like uh, Saracen's points difference and yeah, the sorry, sort yeah. of adequacy of their... No, I just forgotten about it. And the adequacy of their... Of the first fine and the 35 points. And I said, well, you know, if, that, if that's what it is, that's what it is. And then looking at the results week on week, I thought to myself... These guys aren't going to be the last. Like no. they're not even going to be second last. Like there's Waster ninth on thirteen points. Saracens are twenty points behind them, picking up points at a far quicker rate of knots. Uh, like Saris are going to finish in ninth place. At which stage you're sort of going right. They've been shamed, but you know they're still very strong in Europe that season, uh, and they haven't been relegated and they haven't lost any of their trophies. Yeah, so could be in the Challenge Cup next year and win it at the Cancer. Yeah, so kind of this is this is bad. Shame on you, but no real, no real lasting damage has been done. And then this comes along, and you're there going, "Whoa!" <laughs> like the first one was pretty severe, and you're going, "Well, you can you can kind of go, oh, we've ignored it for four years, but now we've done something about it." And you can justifiably say, "No, they they have done something about it." Yeah, but it doesn't really have an impact. But it's They're not going to win the league. Massive. But it looks it looks massive. It is yeah. it is a big fine. And now you're sort of going like, Jesus, it's almost vindictive. Like they're they're just going to run it into the ground. Mm. Um, Good oh, it's, it's well, absolutely. As you say, it's system. It's it's so. But but it has, as you say, it it's hasn't. So big, like it's so in front of you. Yeah. But it's so big that you can't quite get. I can't. I can't get my head around. Just. Like where does it leave English rugby? Now you've got North, like Northampton or like Northampton were dismantled twice consecutive weeks by Leinster. Mm-hmm. So this isn't like you know Leinster played out of their skins and then got beaten by Northampton at home as happened a few years ago, six seven years ago. This is like they were dismantled twice, and you go like that's the second best team in England. Okay, well what about say the psychological effect of going like. To every team except for Exeter, who constantly defy the, um, you know, they, they defy the kind of like sort of consistent mediocrity of the most of the rest of the English teams. Like Bath and Northampton are always kind of good, but always kind of crap. And like Ulster could beat them at home, mm-hmm. you know. So every year, though, those teams are going like, well, who the fuck are we supposed to compete with Harrison's? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, like, and so, like it, that that out, that dents the confidence of your entor- entire organization. Where you're going, like, how can they afford those guys? How can they? How, well, do you remember what Rob Shaw like, came they, out and said? Like Rob Shaw was sl- Rob Shaw slams the Saracens. That was the headline. He slammed them. 
Twitter's blandest account. If, if you have, yes. if you have, if you have <laughs> it is incredibly boring. I don't know. Hold on, Josh Van Fear might have something to say about that. <laughs> um, the boring Carney's account is more exciting than Chris Robshaw's account. If you have, if you have, like, okay, so let's say for the, for the sake of argument that for the next two years, extra end up winning, yeah, just because, yeah, yeah, and then, but then people would be like, well, that's because Rob Bash is an absolutely brilliant coach, and like. He's putting us all to shame. But you realistically have like Northampton, Bath, and uh, Wasps or whoever is Gloucester. Gloucester. Sorry, Gloucester yeah. are back in the open air. Bristol have lots of money. Yeah. Like, but you have all these teams going like, but we could, you know, I could get a home semi final now and, you know, they'll get to, get to Twickenham, have a game and, you know, maybe we'll win it. Yeah. Like, that has a mental effect on the expectations of every team. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something because I looked it up recently. In each of the leagues uh, over the last ten years, there's been six different winners. So six six winners in ten years in the Pro uh, Twelve slash fourteen, six in ten years in the Premiership, and six in ten years in the Top fourteen. Uh, there's been five different winners in the last five years in the Top fourteen in the French League. There's been four different winners in the last five years in the Pro 12 slash 14. It's been Leinster twice and then Glasgow, Scarlets and Connacht. Uh, and there's only been two winners in five years in the Premiership. And it's been Saracens four times and Exeter once. So that speaks to the dominance that the Saracens have exerted over the Premiership in that time. You know, every other league is actually competitive. Like when people, uh, certainly and sometimes when you're looking at Mid mid ta- mid season tables in the Pro Fourteen over the last two years, especially in Leinster, just streaking ahead. And you go, oh, the Pro Fourteen's a fucking Mickey Mouse league. You go, well, it actually gets competitive at the end when it's, you know, once it gets into April, you're looking at it, a very live league. The best and the best team is one at each season. Yeah, mm. you know, so though, that league is more competitive than the English league has been. But that Saracens dominance really extends to essentially the same year as they took over when they were first found uh, to have breached their salary cap in 2015. The first year it was hushed up. And I think you, you mentioned uh, Rob <coughs> Baxter there, so not to diminish what Rob Baxter has done, but it was one of the things I was thinking of doing, um, like a lot of these intentions, of it was sort of tracking the Chiefs and trying to get an idea of the story for the Chiefs. So if we have any Chiefs listeners out there who want to email dementabowl at gmail.com with exactly what did happen, that would save me a lot of work. I very much appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But what I was thinking was, th- this was in context of Munster, and I was thinking about um, Munster not getting out of a group with Saracens and Rassing in it. And... You know, the sort of the navel gazing and the this, the disappointment that goes with it and the fact that Munster have such European pedigree. And I was thinking to myself, Munster, like, have had... I think the toughest thing for Munster is that Leinster is so good at the moment. Like, that that's the hardest thing. And th- there's a quote from J.P. Morgan along the lines of, there's nothing that impairs a man's judgment more than the sight of his neighbours getting rich. So that's a very, very tough group to get out of. But Munster have been in semi-finals in recent years and they didn't miss out by by that much. Now, that that's cold comfort. But I was there looking again at the table. I'll refer back to it. I've said about it them earlier. Leicester are second last. Yeah. Leicester are a bigger club than Munster. Like, Leicester play 
they're in they're in the English Midlands, right? And they don't play in the small city in the English Midlands. Like, they don't play in the Limerick of Midlands. Like they play in the Cork of the Midlands. And there's more people there anyway. And it's a rugby town. And they've had all this success. And they were like the bulk providers to the 2003, like it's Jono's team mm. and Backy's team and the ABC club and Ben, like, you know, Ben K and all the, like Austin Healy, like all these guys who played for that they team. They played, they played in nine premiership finals in a row. They won back-to-back Heineken Cup. So this is all before, and you, if you kind of go back to like when Munster were building. They were the team who went down to Tom and won, weren't they? Yeah. 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 Leicester, Leicester were the team. And now they're second last in the premiership and Exeter head. So part of what I was looking at, part of what I'm curious about is where were Exeter in 2001? And how, like, how have Leicester managed to mm-hmm. fall that far? So... Uh, yeah. can, I, can I just say something here about this, the rise and fall of teams? Like if you look at <clears throat> uh, Lord, who like we all think is just a great spot for a pilgrimage, <laughs> but they used to have a rugby team. But they, they won something like six bootleys in the 50s. What's the... Uh, Bezier. Bezier won something like eight. eight out of ten. For eight out of ten seasons. I think I think for most of the 70s and a little bit into the 80s as well. Well, here's another one for you. Who won more leagues in Germany in the 1970s? Mönchengladbach or Bayern Munich? You, see, you told me this one. It was Mönchengladbach, Gladbach. apparently. And Bayern won three European yeah. Cups in a row. And everyone remembers Beckenbauer and yeah. Muller. But like Gunter Netzer, Wolfgang Overrat, Gunter Netzer and Borussia um, Gladbach, who lost in the European Cup final to Liverpool, they won like four leagues in that in the seventies. Yeah, we buy comparison to three for Bayern. And so Bath like, were a hugely successful team. Yeah, Bath won I, something like six Champlain Cups in a row. Yeah, you know, like there's always been teams who have had great long periods of dominance, and then they lose it, and it's like I, I'm sort of. Munster had a great period, and then they're on the downslope from from that. But that's normal. Leinster will be on. Leinster will hit the skid sometime. You know, nothing lasts forever. And it's, so, the, my thing was, it's not just Rob Baxter. Like, there's there's a story of what a club does and what a club doesn't do that means that they're that makes them successful. Uh, so, look, it's a story for another day because today's all about Sarah. He just burst through the defence. Saint Andre. Going in like a wildcat. Ireland's new coach, Andy Farrell, uh, has uh, got some good time vibes going on, as per Dave Carney's quote that you sent to me before we started this podcast. Uh, A more relaxed atmosphere than the one um, cultivated under Joe Schmidt seems to be the um, seems to be the prevailing thought and also he's going to give the journalists the team sheet on the same time every week which uh, apparently makes you a better coach there was two things also the bowing to public opinion is great how come Stuart McCluskey's not in there no Stuart McCluskey's <laughs> <laughs> yay isn't this guy a great coach <laughs> oh, is that? oh he's in yeah McCluskey's in I missed that headline <laughs> oh Forgot his name. Sorry, Stuart. <laughs> Clerical letter. Yeah, he said some of the backs had knocks and that uh, he was impressed by his performance at the weekend. Yeah. When Ulster true. played their worst game of the group stage. <laughs> he was good, though. McCluskey was good. But he's been good all season. 
I pick, I picked up two quotes. So the, the, I, was, I was more I'm interested about the old coach and then the new coach in different ways. So the, Carney had a, a quote, as you say. So some people don't like that really intense environment where every mistake you make in training or in meetings or anything like that is scrutinized. Players react differently to that, I guess. I think going forward, it'll be a more relaxed environment. Less intense, Carney said. Realizing that Carney now means Dave, not Rob. I know. And the thing about that quote that struck me was the gleeful nature in which it was reported. So this was in, this was the mid-season stockpile just after. So December 2019, where you're still sort Stop of Stop take autocorrects to Stockdale on my phone, by the way. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> Jacob Stocktake. Where you're still raking over the embers of the World Cup. And I was thinking, geez, like Joe Schmidt, Joe Schmidt's coaching body is like buried in the ground. <laughs> like stop, stop dancing on his grave. And then looking at something else, I came across Kieran Reed's. Kieran Reed had a his autobiography. It was released in time for the New Zealand Christmas market. Oh, and is it released over here? Uh, I haven't seen anything over here. I read this in the New Zealand Herald, and he talks about he talks about Richie McCaw. And um, he roomed with them a lot. He goes, it was the ultimate professional relationship, a workplace friendship. I think back to the first time we roomed together in Sydney with the Crusaders in my first year with the team. And he never once asked me a personal question about my life, family, interests, anything outside the team. It wasn't that he was rude. That information was just superfluous to him. He didn't need it in his head when he had other things to think about. Says, we toured with the All Blacks and the Crusaders for nine years, played alongside each other in countless matches, drank endless coffees together and played a million hands of cards. But outside of team, our relationship was not largely non-existent. I respected that intensely. <laughs> <laughs> you just sort of go, that's really odd. And then the fact that really, you just go, that's really odd. If I could keep up, and then he talks about like, you know, going training with McCall and he goes, if I could keep up with his shadow, I knew I was fit. His mindset, the way he could push himself to places no one could follow was one of the most extraordinary things I witnessed. I'm a naturally hard worker. At least I like to think so. But to see what he could do was absolutely inspirational. I sometimes turn up for our training sessions more nervous than I would be for a game. As grueling as those hours were for me, I knew I was in a privileged position to be able to test myself against the fittest guy in the team, if not the sport. And the reason that those two went for me hand in glove or went beside each other is because McCaw is obviously mental. Yeah. Like, ah, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I would categorize that as mental. Like I thought that Kieran Reed, like I thought maybe the first time, you know, my life, my family, my interests, you sort of go on, all right, well, you know, your man's a newbie. And yeah, McCall maybe he's not going to be here in three And then weeks. you go like nine years, like nine years of this. Yeah. But he's awesome. He's, he's the best player. He's the best rugby player I've ever seen. Yeah. And he's not and that mental. We met him. And we met him. He's sound. Um, he does, I mean, he, he wasn't expecting it. Friend, friend of the pod. Yeah, he wasn't expecting much of us. Like, <laughs> Here's the old man. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> tell, you, tell your mama I was asking for it. Will do, Richie. Yeah, <laughs> you mental bastard. <laughs> You're still looking fit, by the way. Um... And my, my thing about this was that about the gleeful nature of the way that Schmidt was, and it was like, ding dong, the witch is dead. You know, like Jordan Absolutely. Larmer can talk to us now. This this crazy intense dude who ruined our World Cup. Like he's all behind us. And then you read about Richie McCall and you go, if you want to be the best, being mental helps. And like, I think 
I mean, I'm going back to the World Cup again, but you sort of look at it with Schmidt and McCaw and you go, like, Schmidt knew this. Like, Schmidt knew, like, this was his last shot and he knew, like, this was what was involved. And the reason that I'm bringing this up now is partly because I read the quote and I thought, geez, that is really interesting. Like, you know, for nine years, this was, like, yeah. all they did was just talk about the All Blacks and the Crusaders. I want to read that book. And, but then, like, we're going into a Six Nations without Joe Schmidt for the first time, what, six years? Yeah, and 2014 is... I'm missing it. Because I look at the Irish World Cup panel, or the Irish coaching panel, and I go, like, it's pretty underwhelming. Like, John Plumtree's going to coach the All Blacks. I came across the coach because I was reading about Brad Moore, who's or Brad Moore, whatever his name is, coaching the... Um, I don't know what his he's name is. just how you pronounce it. Yeah, he's, he's coaching the Scarlets at the moment. You've And he's going to coach the All Blacks. And Plumtree coached Ireland's forwards. Whereas, like, we got John Fogarty, Mike Cash. We still have Simon Easterby and Andy Farrell. And then I was thinking about Andy Farrell going, Andy Farrell just got appointed. And he got appointed. They announced his appointment after Ireland had beaten the All Blacks. So while we weren't the number one team in the world, we were like as close as we've ever been. I mean, we were the number one team that were going into the World Cup. So like, but I mean, we, we legitimately, we'd beaten the All Blacks. We were the number two team in the world. And we were on a massive high. And the, the RFU just dropped in. Oh, by the way, Andy Farrell's the next. And like, no one questioned it. And you're sort of going... Was there a shortlist? Was there interviews? There's nothing. Because reading about your man, more going back, the All Blacks appointed Foster. So it looks like from a distance that was just succession. Hansen took over from Henry, succession. Foster took over from Hansen, succession. The NZRU did invite 26 people to submit their CVs or declare their interest. And then they brought it down to two. They brought it down to Scott Robertson and... Oh, that's actually not his real name. His real name is Razor Robertson. Razor Robertson, friend of Ronan O'Gara and Ian Foster. And Foster got it. Which leaves me thinking, why can't Scott Robertson coach Ireland? Mm. Like, why wasn't why wasn't there competition? Like, you go back, go back to... I had go, never thought that's back, such a... Go back to Ireland's position in world rugby. So, like, okay, we've come out of a crap World Cup, but, I mean, we've three, like, we've three good provincial teams, including one exceptionally good one. And Connacht are, you know, not bad for a team that has less resources than, than the other three. Um... Team went into the World Cup as number one for very briefly, and like whatever way those ratings went, like still miles higher to top of the pile than sort of 10th. Beat the All Blacks twice out of the last three matches. Like the Irish national team coaching job is a, it's a bloody good job. To yeah, get. it's like, a well-organized, a really well-organized union. And like no strife, you know, down, like no strife with clubs or anything like that. I think we, well, we have won, won Six Nations in 14, 15 and 18. Like... That's three, like we've won 50% of the last six nations. So then you go, right, you, like your coaching six, six panel nations. for this year's Six Nations and for like the next four years is going to be Scott Robertson and Ron Nogara with blah, 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 what else? And you're going, I can handle that. That would be actually pretty deadly. Now, they obviously both have jobs at the moment. So it's, but really my thing is, Farrell was just appointed. He was just like, oh, by the way, here's your new head coach. It's like, we didn't interview anybody else. We don't have a manager. Um, like, so we're going into the Six Nations with, you know, Mike Cat as our backs team coach. Is, as, like, is he more experienced than Simon Easterby? He probably is more experienced than Simon Easterby. But like, there's, there's, not, there's no really convincing body of evidence there. Like, certainly, I remember when Stuart Lancaster was appointed because I was in a sort of a... 
I was trying to check my WhatsApp messages like for one hour a day. I was on holidays. I wanted to stay away from my phone. The message came in. Stuart Lancaster has been appointed coach. Now, what do you think? And I was like, I think it's great. Like Stuart Lancaster is a really brilliant coach. Like he's level five or something like that. Like in the way these coaching things, like he's committed his life to it. Mm. So go past the sort of the World Cup that went spectacularly wrong for him. He had an eighty percent win rate in the Six Nations the over four years. The sort of the culture and all that sort of like that. That's that's not his main. Like his main thing is coaching. Like this guy is all about coaching, and he's obviously got international experience, and he's been doing it in the most pressurized, biggest job in the world. I would say England. It's bigger. I think New Zealand is more pressurized in terms like the, mm. the media in England is bigger, and England's a bigger country. New Zealand's more pressurized because the expectations are higher, but their media isn't as ferocious. It's nasty. It's not, not as nasty. nasty. Yeah, you know, and like you know, and Lancaster's from the north, you know, so and he's, he's not an ex-international. So I think I think it's particularly difficult difficult for someone like if you're from Harlequins and you've captained England, I think you could. It's an easier position to be the, the England head coach. So I was very positive on Lancaster's point, but I'm looking at my cat and I'm going, I don't really see anything similar. Like my cat's former international who's won the World Cup and who sort of segued into, he's got a good CV in terms of teams that he's been involved with, but like he's never blown the doors off as a coach and he's never blown the doors off as a head team, like as a, as a first team coach where you're going, like this guy's been in charge of everything and he's bringing that angle in. He's, he's, he's just, he's run moves. And then you got Easterby, and you're kind of going, well, Plumtree was a better coach than he used to be. And you got Farrell, who's never coached a team and doesn't have a manager. So the other quote that sort of stuck out was um, Stuart Lancaster gave, um, what's it called? Uh, he gave, it was, it was in a podcast. It was with the BBC podcast. And he talks about his time. He talks about coaching. He talks about being at Leinster. The BBC came over to Dublin to interview him. And uh, Lancaster says, openly admits he didn't coach enough in England. Such were the demands of one of the most high-pressured jobs in the game. The bulk of his time was spent on management and leadership rather than coaching on the training field. So he said like something like 40, 50 leadership and management, mm -hmm. 10% coaching. Yep. And we've previously talked about the Ireland manager job and, you know, was the right person in situ for the World Cup and who are they going to appoint in lieu of the, not lieu, but in, in the wake of uh, Ibanez and the Welsh flanker Martin Williams yeah. being appointed respective their national teams, like who are Ireland going to do? Because Richard Hill is the England manager. And that was one of the things that Lancaster said in the pod was that oh, when I met Eddie Jones, when he'd been appointed after the World Cup, one of the recommendations I said to him is get yourself a manager. Eddie Jones is, is really... Uh uh, positive about Stuart Lancaster in, in his book. He says he's like, did a really good job, very uh, honorable person to deal with. And he references that conversation. Like, I think it's also, it's in particular, the England job requires a lot of attention to the manager because you have to explain to the clubs, various, you know, the directors more, of rugby. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you know, more clubs than like the Irish one where mm. like everyone's kind of kept in the loop and there's only four of them anyway. But like, yeah, the, yeah, he, it, he, it's a very good podcast for anyone who hasn't listened to it already. I would highly recommend it. But yeah, it, it, he, the amount of things he describes that he has to do that are the job of running the team that aren't coaching are, it's, it's quite a, it's quite remarkable, I think. So we're we're going into this Six Nations. Obviously, like you wish Ireland well. Like you wish him far more than that. Like you really want Ireland to do well. But I'm concerned 
about the quality of the coaching ticket, the experience of it, and the lack of like what seems to me a very significant appointment, very significant position. Does that position even exist anymore? Like, I don't, think it, do, I don't think it does like, exist. Like I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head about how there's no manager and there was no, there seems to be no selection process for the first team coach other than just to appoint the bloke who was next to him. Yeah, it's, un, it's unreal. Like this, it is. is uh, I like. I think it's a it's a healthy level of skepticism. Uh, Farrell is a very charismatic guy, and um, <clears throat> but it, I. I think it's. I think the role of manager is needed in in an international setup. I think it's very important that the head coach has somebody he can talk to about rugby that doesn't answer to him. That he isn't. That isn't subordinate to him. I think it's vitally important. Um, <clears throat> and that I'm convinced that that role needs to be reappointed, and then the right person needs to be appointed to that role. Um, yeah, like. I think there's a every I I just I agree with every point you've made there. I'm I'm uh, an optimist by nature in terms of Irish rugby, but I think that uh, it's it's an untried coaching ticket, and yeah, while it's interesting, um. It's, you know, it's very experimental and experiments often go wrong. Do you think there's any uh, thing to say that like perhaps the Andy Farrell has a personality without the experience given that, but a personality more like that of Warren Catland. Very much so. Than, than Joe. Yeah. And that, that could be something that they were, you know, they... Yeah, they that's, feel is, yeah. Is, is, is an identifiable characteristic that they're looking for. Yeah. Gatland had a huge amount of first uh, of head coaching experience, not when he got the Irish job, but when he got the Welsh job. Mm. Like he'd been an international coach with Ireland, having been head coach at Connacht. Then he went to be head coach of Wasps. Mm -hmm. Very successful. Then he well. got to be. Then he went to Waikato, then he went to Wales. Yeah. And he won something at Waikato. He did, yeah. After being really successful at Wasps. Wasps. Um, he was a good coach for Connacht. As well, he was good coach. Yeah. For He's a good coach for Ireland. But I, but again, look look at Ireland, right? So look look at Mike Cat being appointed. So Mike Cat is coming from the Italian job, where it's no. not like we had to poach him from the Italian. No, job. he only had to blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see what I did there. Which he did not. Which he fucking didn't do. Okay, but my point being, he's available, and then compare that to the way that New Zealand go about it. Like Brad Moore is in a contract with Scarlets. He's gone. He he went around the world at the beginning of this season to take over from PVAC, having done four years as assistant coach at the Scarlets. And then when the job became available because Foster, so suppose he, he wasn't being told, oh, don't go there because you're, you're the next in line. Like you're obviously going to get this gig. Mm -hmm. There must've been some sort of interview process that they went, it isn't a fait accompli that Foster is going to get this and Robertson's not going to get it. Like we're going to interview different guys and then Foster's going to, decide who he wants to have and he's not going to go for just who's available he's going to go i really want brad even if he's at the scarlet so we're going to pay compensation first of all we're going to like we're going to approach him second of all we're going to pay compensation for him and then just personally the thing that I'm, my understanding so is all, they both wanted tony brown both himself and robertson and then that's when why it was big news when tony brown goes no i'm going to stick with jamie joseph okay well, Moore, and then for background, Moore was assistant coach at the Crusaders for four seasons with Robertson. 
So mm-hmm. he's, he's a Crusaders guy. And he's a qualified solicitor. Has been since 1997. Jesus. So a- he's, not, he's not just a rugby coach. Like this, this is a bloke, this is a smart professional bloke who decided to pursue that pathway. And then the All Blacks job came up. Whereas you sort of go on, Ireland have just appointed fellas that are available. That's what it looks like. Well, it, it's... It, I'm shocked more by just what you said in the, in, when you started talking was that the idea that Ireland could have had a coaching ticket that was uh, Scott Robertson and Ronan O'Gara because I assumed he was going to get the New Zealand job. I, 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 whenever I've seen him talk, I've been so unbelievably impressed by him. I understand that Ian Foster has the connection with the legacy coaching ticket, but I've been so impressed by Scott Robertson every time he's talked. And obviously, so like clap. Oh, God, I completely <laughs> yeah. agree. I, yeah. I, 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 I was just like, I had him in my head for like the last years, like rugby clap, and like <laughs> rugby clap, like unbe- <laughs> unbelievable, like kind of uh, combination of charisma and leadership. And I was assuming that he was going to get the New Zealand job. And then he doesn't, I'm like, what? I mean, is he, he's not going to be, is he going to win the next four Super Rupees with the Crusaders and then just get the New Zealand job? Is that what's going to happen? Because like... Well, he only has to win the next two. Uh, Fozzie's job is only, only for two years. Two years okay, yeah. sorry. But... Uh, Fozzie. Yeah, I, I, I was just like, who in the Northern Hemisphere? Because I was thinking like, oh, there's, there's no position available at an Irish province because... Uh, even if, say, Van Gran is is the one who's mo- under most pressure because the expectation levels are so high at Munster, like Van Gran is not two years. Yeah, no, but like yeah. all the Irish provinces have good coaches, and mm. the Irish head coach job has been tied up since for a year, for more than a year, for twelve, mm. for like fourteen, fifteen months. So, so ha- ha- like, where does Scott Robertson get his like massive Northern Hemisphere payoff before he coaches the All Blacks? Nowhere. Stade Francais. So then there was that element of it. And then I thought to myself, God, the Scarlets have done a really good... The Scarlets got Pivac. So Pivac was was highly regarded in New Zealand, but they had to to go and hire him. So that's one international coach. And then another one has gone. So their last two coaching appointments have both gone to the international game from the Scarlets, right? So that's pretty impressive. I cannot believe the Ospreys were in the Heineken Cup this season oh, ahead of the Scarlet. It's absolutely, like it's unbelievable. And I was reading an article about Munster's next six games saying, oh, they're playing these teams, they're playing Benetton home and away and you're going, and the Scarlet's at home. And just, they should win all six. And I'm thinking to myself, Did have you, you seen, have you yeah. seen Treviso play this season? Benetton. Have you seen Treviso, like since, since Kieran Crowley has coached him now, Munster should be Treviso at home, but it's not a done deal. And Benetton are Benetton, huge. Benetton, yeah. Benetton, the hole to play. <laughs> Benetton away is a hard, hard match. They beat Leon. Like they should have beat Northampton. Um, and then the Scarlets, I think, like people in Ireland just don't regard teams in Wales. But if the Scarlets, like, I think the Scarlets will win Conference A of the Pro 14. They're already on top of it. And their coach is going off to coach the All Blacks. And Reese Patchell is going to be back, and uh, Johnny Davis probably mm, won't be probably back. Not, yeah. But I mean, he might. They're not expecting him to be back, and he might be back. If he's back, he'd be back for playoffs. And you're kind of going like, well, the two best teams in Ireland are both in the other conference. So yeah. So yeah. so look that, that. But then you sort of go right, and then compare that to Wales, and basically, Alwyn Jones came back, and then 
just like gave out about like how poorly the Ospreys have been run for pretty much his entire career. So, you know, he gives he gives him this finger wagging. So that was one thing. The other thing I was thinking, this is Alan Jones' first game for the Ospreys this season. It's in January. Mm. So you look at the Irish team, the sort of the player, the player welfare, and then you go, oh, like, you know, how would the Irish teams be affected by being in, in a B&I league where your players had to play all the time? And I go, like, none of the Welsh internationals have played since the World Cup. They have all been banjaxed. Whatever conditioning, whatever peak they had to put themselves into, to get into that World Cup semi-final, just left them ruined. Like, they're all injured. Injured, sick, or just unable to play. We were staying in a hotel, which I don't know if the Welsh were in the same hotel, but certainly they were in one close <laughs> by. huge hotel. They could have like, Oh, easy. This, this is in Tokyo. And we're walking past them, and we see them, and you sort of give a nod, and you go, oh, those, those lads are in Clabber. Like, I wonder if they're falling around. And then you go, that's the Welsh international team, because that's Justin Tipperick. Yeah, and you look at Tipperick and you go, "That man looks." Was he ups- wearing his blue scrum cap? He was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, he's tall. He's obscenely fit looking. Yeah, like he looks kind of unhealthily fit. Like yeah. like when a fighter makes weight. Like when you see a picture of Conor McGregor as a middle. What's he fighting at? He was fighting well. One seventy welterweight, yeah. and you go, Jesus, he looks great for the beach, but he doesn't look like a fighter anymore. Whereas he used to look like like raw and mm. like you know rip like these guys really have to make weight now you're sort of gone he looks like a celebrity who's got in shape you know like, mm. and like Tipperick looked like he looked, former he looked yeah, yeah, he, he looked kind of on the verge of sickness in, yeah. in terms of like he was but like obscenely healthy at the same time but like no extra no obscenely fat. fit and, and, and not healthy obscenely fit and not healthy yeah. yeah like but even the other guys as well I remember when they were walking past us they going who's they look like players and they're going they had that sort of the bit of a tan, but also like yellowish. Like they just looked exhausted. Yeah, big and like muscly and gaunt. In, yeah, in that mm-hmm, kind of like mm-hmm. not beefy at all, you know. Um, and then you go like, how would the Welsh go? Like, how would the Welsh? Because Wales is pretty much run for the national team, despite yeah. their protestations to the country and like you know what Ireland do and this and that. Like the blokes, they don't play for the region. Certainly not in the World Cup. Like when the, a year they won the Grand Slam and got to the semi-finals of the World Cup. Like their players just are, uh, they just don't feature mm-hmm. for their regions. Um, and then Mike Ruddock has taken over at the Ospreys from Lansdowne. Um, so I don't know. Will he, will he, I think he'll stay over there. Birch was saying that their, their budget has been cut by, I think it's 900K, the Ospreys budget. Uh, he said, I was listening to a couple of podcasts that he was on and, you know, it, it, when all their players, all their best players aren't available for them for the first half of the season, essentially, like the season is more or less, and it's halfway points now. It's, it runs a little, normally it happens exactly around the middle of the new year, but because it started a month later, halfway points a month later. And like the Ospreys are... I think they've won two matches all season, won the league and won in the cup. Yeah. So we, we started off talking about Ireland and, you know, just the <clears> appointments <throat> that are made. And then you look at the, you look at the Welsh regions and you got the Scarlets are obviously really well run. The Ospreys are obviously run like an absolute shit show. And it shows. Yeah. And what's turning around now is that the Dragons, uh, through appointing a good coach, Dean Ryan, they're beginning to become. Uh, More obdurate. Yeah, a more difficult team, a more difficult team to beat. And they're clearly ascended into third place. Now, the Ospreys have fallen off a cliff. Like, 
if the Ospreys weren't being run so badly, they'd still be above the Dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, and, you know, Birch started the transformation of the Dragons and he was always clear that it was going to be a three-year project. And, you know, I, I think that that's something which most management boards don't want to hear. They think, oh, at the end of three years, we'll win the league. And they say it's a three-year project. No, no. At the end of three years, you'll start being a proper team. Yeah. That's what the transformation is. You know, when like you, you start off that low. <laughs> yeah. Like when you start off with being the worst team in the league. When you or the second worst. It's a stronghold. Like it, it is, it yeah. It should be like not, it's not in, unfeasible to build uh, a club with a good rugby culture there for like with lots of local players. Like. Welsh people fucking love rugby. Yeah, and Newport's <laughs> not as... Like, Clenetley is... I didn't realise this until we did our... One of our best podcasts, which was mostly about Tony Pandy. Remember <laughs> uh, <laughs> last year we talked about the Welsh regions a lot. And uh, I didn't realise how small Clenetley was. Clenetley as a town has about 48, 49,000 people, you know. Whereas Cardiff, Newport, Swansea are all... Uh, gradations. I think Cardiff is the biggest. Well, Swansea's Swansea's much further west. Swansea's no, but I'm, talk, I'm talking about I'm talking about population size. All right, okay. Uh, so like Cardiff's about three hundred and forty, Swansea's about three twenty, and Newport's about three hundred thousand. So Clenetley is small mm-hmm. compared to the rest, and like it's one sixth or one seventh of the size of its competitors. Uh, so you know, it is as you say before. Newport is a like was a rugby heartland and. It should be able to function as a, you know, a viable. It's in the wealthiest bit of Wales as well. Yeah. So there's 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 that, um, and just how that how that will play out for Ireland because mm-hmm. I think we'll miss Schmidt. Well, I'll miss Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I, I miss him as well, and I, and I feel exactly the same as you do that he got kicked around at the, uh, you know, through in the last few months. The whole yeah, ordinary true, Joe, true. ordinary book, the whole, like, everything. Like, so much of Ireland's success over the last six years goes to him. He's you the best know. coach the country's ever had by yeah. a mile. Oh, by a mile. And, like, you wouldn't fucking, you wouldn't know it. You, you really wouldn't, wouldn't know it, it with the coach that he's got. the public reception of, like, the last six games he had. Yeah. Which, yeah. like... I think more so. I think more so the media reception, media reception. because he was That's on like, the late late and he got me, a yeah, standing better ovation. Said, better said that, yeah. But I go back to like the gleeful nature of the headline is like "Ding dong, the witch is dead." You know, now we can all relax and like tell gags at press conferences. You know, like who cares? So I I think that I think it's worth keeping in mind. Um, you obviously don't wish the team any ill. You obviously massively. Well, I'm like massively cheering for Ireland come the Six Nations, but I am surprised at the... That goes, of, that goes without days saying. Ago. That completely goes lack without of, saying. Lack of days ago way that the appointment was made and the... Uh, lack of scrutiny. Yeah, lack of scrutiny, but the yeah. sort of the uninspiring coaching ticket as well. Like, and you look, like I look at it now and I kind of go, like, if this goes wrong, I'm not massively surprised because, like, it's, it's not that good. And this isn't even... Well, it's scepticism, but it's not intent. This is just applying logic and reason to... To mm-hmm. a coaching assessment, it's just saying we've applied a head coach through not through an open competition. We've applied or we've uh, given the job to somebody who's never been head coach before. Um, it's that's that's the first that's a major issue. We have no manager. 
that was a an issue, certainly in my eyes, throughout the last tournament that we played, something that you would hope. Uh, so we, our manager was inefficient at the last tournament. Now we have no manager. I don't think the, the uh, solution was getting rid of an inefficient manager and not having any manager at all. I don't think the, the post is the problem. I think it's severely dependent on personality and you need a particular type of person to be the manager, but it's a very necessary job. So those are two big issues. And what was the last? Oh, the last bit is Munster. Just while we're on the sort of the topic, yeah. I know that you've we were having the conversation. You you, you think Van Graan's done a good job? Well, I, I think he's done. No, I think he's done halfway a good job. Yeah. He's a very conservative selector, but he as I, when I look at the Munster squad now, I see that it has fewer non-Irish qualified players than it has had for at any stage that I can remember. He got rid of the players that he wasn't picking. He reduced, so he got rid of about eight players that he just wasn't picking last season. So they were getting paid anyway. Uh, and now they're now they're off the books. He's reduced his overall squad side by I think it's I think he's taken five senior salaries off the books. I think it's down from forty eight to forty three. Maybe it's forty eight to forty five. It's three off the books. And so those are those are three big positives. His big nev is that he's so conservative, such a conservative selector um, that he has. Like I look at the monster players, the young players, both in. The, on development contracts in the in the sort of lower age group of their senior squad and in their academy, the Witcherly brothers, Josh the uh, the loose head and Finine the the second row slash blind side. Um, I like uh, Gavin Coombs, the second row slash blind side. I like Jack O'Sullivan, Craig Casey, Ben Healy. Uh, Sean French and Shane Daly. I think they're all very good players. There's eight Hodnett, players there. Hodnett, 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 Hodnett would be another one. Yeah. Hodnett and Wren. Yeah, I'm not as sold in Wren as you are. Um, but that's eight players from the last three years uh, of Irish under-20s. Each of them was within, you know, one of the top five players in their under-20s side. They were good players. Uh, Finneen Witchley is the one who's got the big push. Uh, Van Grand selects him a lot. But aside from that, Sean French hasn't played a minute. Sean French is a super talent. Craig Casey played very little. Jack Sun. These players have played very, very, very little rugby. And it, this is a... Munster's age profile is... is Like, this is, would have been a, a good season for them to qualify. They've got a lot of guys who are uh, 30... They've got a lot of guys like Earls O'Donnell, Kilcoyne, Archer, Ryan... Oh, Manny Murray are all born in the late 80s. So they're 30, 31, 32, 33 this year. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a big portion of their squad. Well, I, I brought it up because I was thinking of the 85, 86 article that you wrote about mm. that generation and about the fact that Kidney didn't pick any young guys uh, when there was fewer league matches and you could get away with picking pretty much your Heineken Cup team mm. throughout what has turned out to be a reduced league season and that really that you've been looking at this for the best part of a decade that you were looking at these guys when they were picked like Adamani, Murray, Ryan that that generation saying that like this is this is sort of crucial to long term success so McGann picked all those guys yeah that it's crucial to long term success of an Irish province is that you have to pick these guys you have yeah. to bring through guys you have to put your own stamp like Pat Lamb did it with Connacht not necessarily all from the Connacht Academy, but like pick guys out of the AIL that suited his template. And yeah. you're going like, look, these cost nothing. Yeah. Like these, these, and 
you can but sort it's of just the nature of there are no it's just something that you have to do you have to it's do. either gonna it, it'll probably end up if you're van gran like this is his his he's been in in the coaching job for more than two years now he took over in november two years ago so his first year was just basically carrying on what Razzie did his second year finished with getting rid of the players he wasn't um really pushed on so he did a certain amount of calling on the squad but this is all happening very slowly now like he hasn't really he hasn't really invested any game time in most of those players like Craig Casey coming on in a dead rubber match uh against the Ospreys like it's good for uh, it's like you know when mankind used to go it's great to be here back in Springfield and read it off his hand like it's good for the cheap pop but like that was, he'd played, up until that point, he'd played less minutes in the season for Munster than Rowan Osborne had played for Leinster. Well, the, the thing, the thing I guess that I'm, I look, I look at Munster's results and they're, they're, they're so skewed by Europe. Europe is so important. Mm. And in that way, I think, oh, Van Graan's under pressure. Like the, this is the sort of the, the mood music that comes in the media or on social media, whatever way. And then I also hear the lines, I've oh, got to give the coaching ticket time. And I sort of go, neither of them are, like, I wouldn't really buy either of those. Like, partly, there is some truth in them. But I think from, like, Munster's players lost it for them this year. Like, if, okay. if, if, if Hanneran had got the kick, and then I was thinking in terms of Hanneran, I was there going, this is a bloke that Mike Rudder goes under 20s coach goes, like, he's a really, really good, when he's under 20, he's a really good kicking out half midfield player. Like he's, he's a great kicker. And then his place kicking record is excellent. And then he misses a drop kick, which like he should get. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, how come he doesn't get that? And the, the obvious guy to compare him to is Ronald O'Gara. Because you've got Ronald O'Gara gets that kick. So then mm -hmm. I think to myself, like, so what, what's the difference? Is it like, does O'Gara just practice more? Like, does he mentally prepare himself more? Like, is, is that what it is? And you, you sort of come down to... Like that idea of leadership and ex-players talking about like leaders, like fellas who want to be leaders in the squad and they but need like, more leaders in the squad. But like that, that to my mind is an example of one where I go, and we talked about it afterwards, like that was a sliding doors moment for O'Hanron, or for, not O'Hanron, for JJ Hanron, that had he got it, that had been two points more for Munster. So they missed off uh, qualification. They're two points behind Saracens in the pool. So that would have been two points more had he got that kick. And then not closing out Saracens, allowing Saracens a bonus point in Tolmont. Mm -hmm. Like, is that bad coaching? Like, I mean, th there's got to be some execution from the players and that. And then decision-making on the field, not to put themselves in situation to pick, take, take to, a, to, to, to get a bonus point yeah. over and burn it. And you sort of go like, well, if like just the Rasa match and the Saracens match, like the home and the away, like that's the three points that they need. And you knew at the time that it was going to be and I don't know how much of that you can pin on Van Grand. Now, like he sets the culture, but like I think sort of the players have done have sort of let him down. But like the bits that he's definitely in control of are the selection of the team and like sort of the pruning of the squad. So I I think that they're well. My belief good. is that he's very conservative. He's very conservative with, with the selection of the team. And I think that the six-two split is that makes me <clears throat> much more doubtful about him. I think that's just a copycat move. I don't think Munster have the personnel. Why wasn't he doing it last season? Yeah, and I don't think that. Um, <clears throat> I don't think they're the, the forwards person. I don't think they're that strong in the pack to to necessitate going to a six two. And I also think that the nature of the six two is that you have to have pretty 
outstandingly rounded player to 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 fill the it's not just an outside backs up it's an inside and outside backs up mm. and they don't have one you know maybe if they had Joey Carberry on the bench mm-hmm. that's a player who might be able to you know play the Franz Stein role yeah because he's a he can be a 10 12 he could fit in at 13 because he's quick and nifty and he can be a 15 you know and you can stick him out in the wing if you need to but they they don't have that so I think that that 6-2 split is is uh is foolish mm-hmm. um and um i <clears throat> he's I, I think there is a lot of benefit to uh letting cockrell and um Larkham. and Larkham just actually get more than their toes in under the desk and have the the full year but he still retains selection he has to and I absolutely mean has, but I've been saying this for like since halfway through last year. You know, he has to pick young players. The key thing with Leinster isn't that their academy is so good, and this isn't just me changing the fact. The key thing is that their academy and young players get selected in games all the time, all the time. Like I don't think that when you see players at under twenty, penny beside Hodnett. There isn't that much of a difference between them. Uh, <clears throat> Sean French, I felt, was the most talented back of the under twenties last year. Not that he got the most game time. I felt he was. He, I felt he was the most talented back. It's most eye catching, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, he was the most eye catching. Maybe Harry Byrne is more talented actually, but right up there, you know. And and this is, like, he hasn't got a minute, like not a minute of game time. Oh, and because because why? Because there's other players in the queue, or because maybe he doesn't go well. You're going, maybe he fucking does go well. But he, yeah, I I would always be a very most of the players big, when you give them a chance, they don't let you down. You, and if they do let you down, you're going. So what? It's only a game. One one player out of fourteen. If the rest of you're doing your jobs, we'll still win. Yeah, I, you can't prove that you're good enough for the next level at the level below it. There has to be a leap of faith by any coach. Yeah. I, Convinced of that? Well, like you know, maybe there's a once in a blue moon, there's a, a, a Dr- an O'Driscoll or something like that. But like, yeah, there has to be a leap of faith by the coach to be playing full adult senior pro rugby from under twenties or from playing A's. Like I looked at uh, Finneen Wickerly when he was in the twenty seventeen under twenties, very good under twenty at that stage. But like, he was no better second row than Sean French was. Uh, uh, a center. So, like, why are you so worried about playing French? Why are you so worried about playing Healy? Why was he so worried about playing Craig Casey? Said, Don't worry about it. Just play them. Mm-hmm. You know? and, that, and that's and that's what the international window uh, imposes upon a league that runs in parallel. Mm. That these players do get a chance, and I think. From the coaching point of view, that's the bit that I'm curious of. That it isn't just a matter of, oh, you know, the coaching ticket has to bet in. The coaching ticket has to be given a chance, but it also has to prove itself. And by its squad players coming in and performing, that's evidence. Because yeah. you look at you look at Ulster and you go, Ulster are relying less on emotion this season, and they're just more consistently performing, which is evidence. Of a good coaching performance. Because coaches are there to improve players, not just to give players a game plan. 
they're there to improve players. Like you should be able to get decent raw material. And if you're a good coach, turn that decent raw material into a very good player. Because you're assuming that the good player wants to become a very good player or the decent raw material. If he has the desire, you should have... It's like the old story that's at the start of Moneyball or one of the little spokes. It's like you have a guy who runs 40 in 4.45 with great technique and you have a guy who runs a 40 in 4.48 with terrible technique. Who do you want to coach? The terrible technique. The guy with terrible technique. If he can run the 40 in 4.48 with terrible technique, imagine how he's going to run it with good technique. You know, mm-hmm. your coaching should be the ability. It's like, if you get decent raw materials, you should be able to turn turn that into a good player. And like, I don't believe that these guys, like I, uh, I know that there's a, you know, certain strength and conditioning things, elements in, in Leicester schools might be superior to some in, 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 in some monster schools, you know, small sample size stuff. But like, I think there's some really good players in Munster. Yeah, and I think in terms of, like, you look at the premiership and look at Pearson coming into Watford and you go, there's pretty much an immediate uptick. Now, Watford lost this week, but their record since he came in is absolutely outstanding. So coaching obviously does make a difference and it can make an immediate difference to it as well. I think just just talking on the subject of the 20s, just the final thing, because you're, you're talking about the Leinster schools, that the, the 20s announced their panel, the 37-man panel for the... World Cup. Yeah, no, no, the, the Six Nations. Nations. Oh, sorry. It's the first time I've ever seen, they sort of, they had two slashes. So they had three, they had something slash something slash something in the brackets after them. So the something is, for example, Leinster mm-hmm. and then Clontarf or Dublin University or Gary Owen, whoever, like the club that they're with at the moment. And then the club that, or the school that they, their background was from, like that they'd, that they'd learned their rugby from. So for example, like Charlie Ward is the first guy, Leinster, Clontarf. Tullow, RFC. The next guy on the list is uh, Marcus Hannon, Leinster Old Belvedere, Clane RFC. The next guy is Harry Noonan, Leinster Old Wesley, Greystones RFC. So then, and then you got, and you sort of going like, are these like where they play mini rugby? And then you get into Belfast Royal Academy, Campbell College, Clongos, Blackrock, Clongos, and then Wexford Wanderers, Waterpark RFC, which I thought was a direct rebuttal to the media criticism that. Irish players only come from Michaels or Blackrock because there's there's quite a widespread in that under 20 squad of both clubs and school and then okay like the schools there's a lot of familiar names but like Waterpark have two two guys back to back yeah yeah mm. because Wexford Wanderers Waterpark Waterpark Wexford Wanderers Deeney Owen O'Connor and Thomas O'Hearn are Wexford and two Waterpark guys yeah Thomas O'Hearn's a big tall second row mm. so That's it. That's it. They're from more places though than you than you than you suspect. Yeah. 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 It's not all Michaels and Rock.